from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Benjamin Ensor. We've just finished recording our news show. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including UK mortgage lenders halt some deals after the pound falls. And we talked about how rapid increases in prices in those swap markets has caused lenders to withdraw their short-term mortgage offers because they're uncertain about their own long-term funding costs. DoorDash partners with JP Morgan on credit card. We talked about whether they'd missed their moment um, of launching during the pandemic when people were relying even more heavily on home deliveries of food and also why Americans are so much more enthusiastic about credit cards than people elsewhere in the world. And we answer some questions from the mailbag, including some really tricky questions about the operational challenges of rapidly changing interest rates and some much nicer ones about how people first got into fintech. We get into all of this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. As you gear up for autumn, you need the right people on your team to help your small business fire on all cylinders. LinkedIn Jobs is here to make it easier. Tap into the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK. Create a job post in minutes and spread the word so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Just add the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile. Simple tools, like screening questions, make it easy to find candidates with just the right skills and experience. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires compared with leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. And you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to episode 668 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Ross Callahan. How are you doing, Ross? I'm very well, Benjamin. Very well, thank you. Busy this week, but um, yeah, glad to be here and looking forward to what uh, already sounds like an interesting show. Indeed, it's been a busy week with some slightly mad news. Um, As always, we're joined by some very special guests. Firstly, making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Francesca Carlesi, co-founder and CEO of Molo Finance. Welcome back to the show, Francesca. Can you give our listeners a recap on you and Molo Finance, please? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. So I run uh, Molo Finance, which is a digital mortgage lender. So what we do, we digitize and disrupt the mortgage industry, which is one of the as we're learning today, one of the most fundamental basic financial needs for everybody. And, and we are probably still today the only one, uh, the only digital native lender in, uh, in Europe. Welcome back. It's also a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Douglas McKenzie, Chief Content Officer of Fintech Finance. Welcome back. What's currently got you excited about the world of fintech? I mean, it's a big question, but I mean, it's, it's fintech related, but I've just been a, uh, an insurtech. Uh, conference, and we were talking about uh, using satellite technology to predict uh, uh, floods, um, earthquakes, and obviously was what happening in on the east coast of the states um, in the last couple of days. I think that's never been more pertinent, and it's a way of really showcasing how you know the human stories behind fintech and insurtech are really making themselves known. Yeah, I love it. I, I, InsureTech has such so many opportunities to use data to help people avoid risk. Right. You know, so it's not just about moving money around, but you can reduce risk yeah. by helping people understand the risks they're exposed to. Saving lives. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get into the news. So our first story comes from the UK because there's some, been some crazy stuff happening. Um, UK mortgage lenders have halted some deals after the pound falls. Uh, this was reported in the BBC News and lots of other places. Everyone in Britain will be well aware of this story, but um, some beyond may not be. Um, so what's happened is some mortgage deals have been withdrawn by banks and building societies after a rapid fall in the pound fueled forecasts of a sharp rise in interest rates. Virgin Money and Skipton Building Society halted mortgage offers for new customers, while Bank of Ireland said it had withdrawn all mortgages from the UK. Halifax said it would stop mortgages with product fees. The central bank, the Bank of England, said on Monday it would not hesitate to hike interest rates after the pound hit record lows against the dollar. Experts said a rise in the cost of long-term borrowing meant the current cost to mortgage lenders of offering new deals was now more expensive. 
There are also concerns that would-be borrowers will rush to secure mortgages at favourable rates before interest rates rise, and, if if rates do jump, that homeowners will not be able to afford higher repayments. Francesca, as someone with a wealth of mortgage experience, it's great to have you here to discuss this. Um, Why is the mortgage market so shaken up right now? Why is this such a big deal? Yeah, so let's say it's been a very unusual and special week for the mortgage market this uh, in the last three days, really. So the real, the main trigger of all of these is the sharp increase in swap rates in the capital market side, uh, which have effectively doubled in one day on Monday. So Monday swap rates, just to give you a sense, went from an average of 3% to being above 5%. The same increase had happened before, in, it would take 12 months before, right? So this all happened in one day. And the reason why this is so critical is because effectively one way or the other, the cost of funding of all mortgage lenders is linked to swap rates. This is a, a key venture in the capital market side. And so all of a sudden, most lenders, in fact, almost, I would say all lenders have found themselves out of pocket because their cost of funding became higher than the interest rate that they were charging on the mortgage. So inevitably, the only reaction that could, be, could happen is that everybody pulled out Effectively, the fixed rate ranges, if not all products from the market. And what is happening intensively, I think, in every mortgage lender right now is everybody's looking at their range and potentially repricing. Uh, so that's been the main, the main trigger. Does that mean the banks will come back in, a, or sorry, lenders will come back in a few days with repriced uh, mortgages, mortgages at different rates, or is there is there a bigger is this a bigger thing? Are they are some of them going to sort of pull out of the market? Um, is this just a temporary thing because prices have changed so fast, or does this ha- start having a structural effect on the market? Yeah, so I think I would probably decompose the Fed in a more short term and long term. So I think in the short term, I would say this is not. 2008, okay? This is not the global financial crisis. It's not a structural disruption. Mortgage lenders had to do something, but the expectations is that in the next week, in the next two weeks, some people in the next few days will come back to the market with a reprice range. And what we should expect is that on average, the cost of a mortgage will increase significantly. On average, I think it's not unrealistic to think the cost of mortgages will double which is quite a massive statement, considering we're talking about time horizon of a week, right? So it's not a disruption. Lenders will come back, cost of mortgages will increase, but I don't, I don't think that there are reasons to believe that it will be a seismic um, shift, like in terms of uh, the mortgage market. So at least in the short term, so I think for all everybody looking for a mortgage, it's just a just wait a moment, stay calm, take advice, but I don't think there is any any concern beyond that. However, I do think in the long term, we need to think about what what's the spillover effects in the long term, because clearly interest, higher interest rate on a mortgage are quite a big deal uh, in terms of affordability. So th- th- there are serious concerns about uh, the ability for people to afford a home and to afford a mortgage they already have, right? And this, of course, is different depending on the situation on everybody, whether you're looking to remortgage, you're long-term fixed. But that is, I think, the probably most area of concern, which is what is the impact longer term? Will people not be able to afford a mortgage anymore? And potentially, could this trigger um, a, a new wave of credit losses and defaults and, um, and other similar consequences? Let's bring um, Ross, Ross, Ross and Douglas in. What, what does this mean for, for people looking to buy homes as, as, as well as current homeowners? Maybe start with you, Ross. And... Oh, I think it's, I mean, it's extraordinary. Absolutely, I think, extraordinary what we're seeing at the minute. I really feel, I think you're right, Benjamin, it's important to have um, a little bit of a focus almost on the human, the human story here. I really feel for people that were in the process um, of purchasing or selling a home who had sort of more both, you know, to pick up on Francesca's point, sort of uh, sort of very short-term immediate um, hopes of buying a home and then sort of longer-term as well with a view in terms of how those mortgage rates are going to increase because there's just so much um, uncertainty now and volatility um, in the market. And I'm sure people's, uh, people's plans in that respect have essentially... Um, essentially imploded. Um, so I really feel for people in, in those situations, I think, yes, 
there is an element in the short term of, of sort of repricing those and coming back out with those um, with with those repriced mortgage products. But equally, as we say, those are going to be more expensive, and so those people are going to be uh, paying more, um, as well as people that are locked into uh, that, that 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 are on on variable rates. Of course, their rates will shoot up um, off the back of this as well. So tough for them for sure. I mean. Just on the perception side, I think a lot of people maybe in their late teens, early 20s already had a perception that it was an unattainable financial product. Um, and now that certainly has shaken that to the core. Um, but also, it's not just the people looking to remortgage, but it's the people, as you, uh, we were talking about new homes, um, the people down the chain who were uh, hoping for this all, all to work out are now being collectively in the same situation. So it's quite a scary knock-on effect, I imagine. Yeah, there's a lot of short-term pain. Yeah, I think, I think um, and this goes, this goes beyond just mortgages, right? I mean, um, the, the market reaction, I can't remember if we've mentioned this, obviously, is in response to the new Chancellor's sort of mini-budget on Friday, which has really, I mean, tanked the the pound right there's no there's no other way to to sort of describe it it's fallen to record uh, record lows against the dollar um i think the the former governor of the bank of england mark carney said today that they were working the government in terms of the their their fiscal measures maybe working at odds to to some of the institutions like the uh, office for budget responsibility the obr and the bank of england's mandate to um control inflation. So obviously, of course, now the Bank of England has come out and said it will likely raise interest rates to to offset the sort of weak pound and those inflationary pressures. But it's also, of course, as we saw yesterday, caused a, a really sharp decline in, in bond prices, right? So that's really caused a, a sharp spike in the cost of borrowing, Um through the the bonds that the government is going to need to do to fund these measures. And actually, we've seen the the Bank of England then had to step in, start to buy up those government bonds because they were genuinely concerned about what they called a material risk to to pension funds. Um, You know, the fact that they had to step in yesterday because they genuinely feared a crash in pension funds. This goes beyond mortgages and I suppose really starts to underscore the scale of the problem. W- weren't they going to crash literally at the end of that day? Uh, the, the pension Correct, crash? within hours. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, it is. A, yeah, it, I think Ross fully agree. I think that is the broader problem here. It's beyond mortgages, right? Because effectively, yeah, there was a trigger point, which was this mini budget that has kind of triggered a lot of reactions. I mean, the swap rate, I mentioned the swap rate, but that's only, that's a consequence to that, right? So it's effectively a... Uh, 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 a, a, a synthetic summary of what the market is feeling right now. And so effectively the risk is that, okay, now in the short term, there'll be difficulties on the mortgage market, rates will increase, but effectively housing affordability will become even more difficult. As you mentioned, potentially there's a big question mark as well, what happens to property prices? Because in a market where fewer people can buy a property, um, then, there are also forecasts being already started to be shared about potential fall in, on property prices, which we know is quite important in this market. And then whilst on the other hand, we have been already seeing this whole increase in energy prices, cost of living difficulties, which reduces furthermore affordable income. So it looks like a recipe for disaster. So in this situation, the Bank of England, also the government will need Bank of England is already doing something, but rising increasing interest rates is not a choice because they need to, you know, put some pressure on inflation. Whilst something needs to be done to then support family and households, I think for sure. So this really spirals beyond the mortgage market um, into the whole of the whole of fintech, the whole of financial services. Because to your point, Francesca, that we already had this sort of cost of living crisis driven by a number of factors, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, driving up energy prices. And now suddenly a whole bunch of households across the United Kingdom are now looking at significantly higher mortgage payments um, on top of much higher energy bills. 
that's presumably going to put a lot of households under a lot of pressure and going to start leading to potentially more defaults. Francesca, how are you and your team thinking about this? Because obviously it's been a really hectic week, I'm sure, for your team. I'm sure your team's been under a ton of pressure. But going forward, you're now looking at an environment where presumably we're going to start seeing higher default rates, right? Yeah, so I think we've, of course, we've done a lot of thinking about this, right, in the last three days. But to be fair, not only in the last three days. I mean, clearly there's been an acceleration, as we said, you know, in one day triggered by the mini budget. But this escalation of interest rates, energy crisis has been going on now since January, right? So in reality, a lot of our thinking, we try to stay three steps ahead, right? So <laughs> some of this thinking, we just have to accelerate it now. But effectively, the way, um, I mean, I, I would say, in a way, we are also in a in a lucky situation because if we think about Molo, yes, we are a fintech, so we are. I think we wear two hats at every point in time. So one time on one side, we are a mortgage lender, but we are also a tech company. Okay, as a mortgage lender, of course, we're looking at to play safe, to be careful, stay close to our customers, and of course, we also have to you know, suspend products from the market um, because we also need to reprice and all that. Uh, but we have the benefit compared to other mortgage lenders that we don't have a huge, huge and old and legacy portfolio, right? So in reality, we are not worried at model of credit losses because typically these are the ones that impact on the older loans, older vintage of loans, whereas, you know, we've been going off the last three years in the mortgage market three years is not a lot, right? So the, I think the lenders are more focused on and probably should be more concerned about credit losses and people are the ones that have this huge portfolio that's been built in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And that, that in a way is something good. Of course, we do monitor portfolio, but so far that's not a concern for us. I think the most interesting part is, however, what we are doing in terms of wearing our fintech hat, so our tech hat, because inevitably, I mean, that's a little bit part of our DNA, um, we tend to think that always when there is a crisis, there's also an opportunity, there is always the half full part side of the glass. And I do think that this is a moment of potential massive opportunity to bring some much needed innovation in the market and to potentially shake up some of the issues. because. If we step back for a moment from the mini budget, the swap rates, and everything we've been discussing, the real question is why is the UK mortgage market so much impacted every time and customers, consumers are impacted so much by volatility in the market and things that happen, right? This doesn't happen the same in other countries, like Italians probably can tell, and all other markets are much more resilient on, in the mortgage side vis-a-vis uh, -vis capital market volatility. And there is a reason that is that the, the structure of the market is different here. You tend to have short-term mortgage rates, fixed rate. Across the rest of the world, you typically have long-term fixed rate for 20, 30, 40 years, which effectively acts as a you know immunizer vis-a-vis -vis volatility in capital markets. So I think for, from that point of view, what we're doing at Molo is to think, okay, is this opportunity to be more innovative bring some more product innovation in the market, bring product that can stabilize the market for good and give a good proposition for customers and effectively isolate them from volatility that is inevitable, right? Today is because of this, but every three to five years is always something. So we are looking at product innovation and new products that we can bring to market like long-term lifetime mortgages. We're already actually in the market for that. Um, offset mortgages are things that can preserve customers from market volatility, whilst at the same time, you know, giving them a, a way to still buy a house without having to struggle every two years to, to, to think whether they can afford it or not. Fantastic. You made some really interesting points there, particularly about the, the, the different structure of the UK uh, mortgage market compared with some of the other European mortgage markets. So good luck to, to you and your team um, managing through this sort of crisis over the, uh, the next few weeks. Unfortunately, that's all the time we've got on this story. So we'll move on, move on to our next row. Much as I was tempted to ask you about the political questions, and of course, Italy's had its own political changes in the last week, but we won't go there. So <laughs> we can I'm, do another you know, two hours on that. <laughs> you don't want to get me started on the topic. So our next story uh, is, is is less political. Uh, JP Morgan is strengthening its push into dining with a new DoorDash credit.
credit card. This was reported on Bloomberg. So JP Morgan Chase is launching a credit card with the delivery service DoorDash. It's the latest addition to the biggest US bank's ever-growing range of co-branded card deals. The card, which is DoorDash's first, will operate on MasterCard's network, expanding on the existing relationship among the three companies, they said in a joint statement. JP Morgan and DoorDash have collaborated on credit card perks since January 2020, while MasterCard and DoorDash began offering benefits together last year. The firms didn't disclose details on annual fee, launch date or perks, beyond that cardholders will be able to earn rewards on and off the DoorDash platform. We asked 11FS's own David Barton Grimley, Global Strategy Director of Embedded Financial Services, whether this could be a significant partnership or is this just branding? The food delivery market in the US has been experiencing record growth, with DoorDash and Uber locked in fierce competition for retention and finding ways to boost margin. Offering loyalty points through a credit card may be one way to do this. And this isn't JP Morgan's first foray into co-branded credit cards with delivery companies. They're also launching a card with Instacart this year. We have a few questions about this strategy. At a time with inflation and huge economic uncertainty, the convenience of ordering takeaway could be one of the first things to go. In fact, DoorDash have already experienced the lowest user growth rate in their history from 2020 to 2021. When restaurants face an inflating cost base, will they still be able to afford DoorDash's 15 to 30% commission fees on each order? The fundamental question for us is this. Is JP Morgan jumping on a hype cycle which may already be passed? Or is there a genuine long-term strategy to make credit cards an intrinsic part of a sustainable business model? Douglas, I might come to you first on this. What, yeah. what do you make of this story? Does this sound like just marketing or is there something more than that? Do you think customers really want co-branded cards and want the rewards? Is that just is that an American thing that works there and doesn't work elsewhere? I don't know. Personally, if I pull out my card and it had a big Uber, uh, Uber Eats sign on it, I'd be scared of what, how much people would think, how much takeaway people think I would get. Um, <laughs> I quite like it because it, it feels like it's going back to this whole, you know, the original credit card of you know, tying it in with food, you know, the, the the diner card, everything like that. But it does seem strange to, to choose this organization, especially when you hear you know, the, the lowest growth rate from 2020 to 2021 in a time where I certainly know I was sat at home for the whole year ordering takeaway rather than going to a restaurant. So this is strange to me that they've gone for it. You think they missed their moment? I think so. It would have been good maybe uh, two years ago. Well, maybe not, as you can see from that, that growth rate. What do you reckon, Ross? Is this... Um... I don't know if you're a big uh, takeaway fan or not. Maybe you don't have to say. <laughs> but do, 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 oh, no. do you see a logic to this deal? I'll admit nothing. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't, Benjamin. Um, I don't like this. Uh, honestly, I worry about sort of pushing credit cards and other secured lending products right now. And I think especially maybe where the core of that proposition is based around rewards and other incentives, I think, aimed at encouraging people to spend on these products. I mean, look, I get the draw of rewards, right? And obviously, they're a useful tool in terms of providing an incentive and driving behavior. I think my point here, though, is that we should be incentivizing the right behaviors. And I think fundamentally, rather than coming up with glossier credit cards with cool brands, you know, I think we need to be rethinking the ways in which we can help consumers build better financial behaviors, getting them on the path to financial wellness. And I think as we covered off really well in the previous story, there's just so many financial pressures on individuals right now. And I think we should be giving people the skills to manage those. You know, I think we've already touched on this. I don't think encouraging regular expensive food deliveries really falls within that, I think, again, it sort of misses the point. So I don't love this. Francesca, do you think the guys are being unfair? I mean, isn't fintech all about, you know, partnerships and, you know, developing distribution? I mean, isn't this a smart move by JP Morgan? Are are these two being too skeptical? (laughs) So I'm afraid this time probably... Probably are all on the same front here, but let me maybe elaborate on that. I think there is, is probably the picture is a little bit more nuanced, right? So on one side, 
I think the US market is slightly different than European market in terms of cars and co-branding and partnerships. I mean, we still remember, you know, the days of Capital One, MBNA, you know, this co-branded card. I don't think we in Europe fully understand how important, I mean, the US culture mentality in this respect is a bit different. So probably should take it with a pinch of salt. Um, however, on the other side, I tend to agree here with Ross and Doug that, I mean, cards today, every one of us, I mean, there's so many cards being issued at a very point in time for a specific product that I think the problem is that you cannot use a card for every single product, right? So you almost want to get rid of the cards and digitize everything and just, yeah. you know, get rewards in a more immaterial way. So I'm not sure that is the right way. And at the same time, I tend to agree with you in terms of timing, uh, it seems like a little bit late. So it sounds like, I don't know, I, I suspect that maybe this was a partnership that was started to be studied two years ago, and then it just took time to get to market and then it's landing the market probably in the wrong moment. Um, so you're saying, so yeah, on, you're saying a, a big bank took two years to get a, a something done? <laughs> Surely not. Well, I'm a bit skeptical. I spent too much time in banking myself, but <laughs> <laughs> so, so I can talk about it. But it doesn't seem a breakthrough innovation because I agree with you, if you have to spend time and en energy in these days, probably the other things that are more disruptive give real benefits. This is not giving real benefits to customers, right? It's just trying to incentivize a specific spending, which by the way, yes, probably is not what people should do right now. So, I mean, I, big, I have a big admiration for JP Morgan and doing great things, but at the same time on this one, I'm not sure whether uh, the benefit, let's, let's see, right? I'm not sure whether this would be something that would reap the benefits that they are looking for. So perhaps the really interesting part of this story is it, that it's JP Morgan that's doing this yes. and that it's another sign of JP Morgan and, and Jamie Dimon's real focus on fintech and real focus on yeah. trying to change his organization. Yeah. And maybe not every move is the best move ever, but as part of a wider Gotta try. shift. Yeah. I mean, for me, in terms of just the theory behind it, it does typify embedded finance. You know, it's bringing finance, you know, other brands that are not financially focused into that financial sphere. And I know it's almost in the same kind of uh, way that, that Apple and, and Goldman Sachs have done it. Um, yeah, it's a bit more of a kind of just window dressing. Um, I think it's testing the waters of embedded finance, being able to actually start connecting non-finance brands to finance brands and people start forgetting that actually banks and who they pay with are different entities. I don't want to be mean to, to DoorDash, and I know you're a huge fan, but, um, <laughs> uh -oh. but I think, you know, Goldman Sachs got the better deal with, oh, with Apple, so. perhaps, you know, that's you yeah. know, the, the, stronger, the stronger brand. But Okay, well, let's move on to our, 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 next, our next story, because um, I think you know, it's super interesting on embedded finance, but let's, let's move on. Um, so we'll just take a quick pause here, and we'll be back very shortly. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with handy tips and actual insights, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset to your organization. Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. As the leading open banking platform, Tink enables the largest banks, lenders, and payment providers to offer exceptional user experiences. Tink offers the best way to connect to banks across Europe to build seamless services that can reach more than 250 million consumers. And they're already doing this for the likes of American Express, PayPal, and Revolut. To get started with data-driven solutions for customer onboarding, making better risk decisions, or for instant bank payments with the highest conversion rate in the industry, visit tink.com. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. It's baffling. Startups slam Barclays' contract win from TechNation. This was reported in City AM. The startup community in the UK has pushed back against reports that Tech Nation may be facing a threat after the government reportedly handed its £12 million contract to Barclays. The banking titan reportedly nabbed the contract from the Entrepreneur Network, which is best known for providing support to aspiring founders and scale-up firms. A startup source told City AM that the move is baffling if true. 
They added, you can't let a bank run the government support programs for startups like fintechs. It's like letting an arsonist teach kids about fire safety. Since its formation in 2010, Tech Nation has supported over 4,000 UK tech companies, working with over 30% of the UK's 122 tech unicorns ever created and 44% of the UK's decacorns. A decacorn got to 10 million, right? Um, while Tech Nation's existing government funding will run until March 2023, it is now unclear what the future for the organisation will hold beyond that. Um. Douglas, what do you mm. reckon? Can you put startup acceleration in the big banks? I mean, I mean calling Barclays an arsonist is probably yeah. unfair. But. I mean, wow, that was uh, quite a line. But it is strange. Um, I mean, I, I think we're going to come on to it later, but I think a lot of the discussion is, you know, a lot of the fintechs being baffled as, as to why this has happened. But I imagine a lot of the incumbent banks, the traditional banks, will think, gosh, is Barclays going to get the the first dibs at um, partnering with these, you know, these small fintechs that they're incubating. And when you look at, for instance, um, Barclays Rise, because I know that is the entity that has actually taken over, um, for instance, their global operations, they they, they um, stopped their uh, Rise uh, Villainous over in Lithuania in 2019 um, and gave that over to Swedbank. So if the government has awarded it to Barclays Rise because of Barclays' apparent global infrastructure. It's interesting to see that maybe the rise side of things doesn't follow suit. I really like your point on the sort of competitive impact on other other banks. Yeah, um, because yeah, the obvious side of this story is well, what, is this is this actually helpful for startups? But you're you're quite right. Other banks must be up in arms if this is if this is confirmed. Uh, Francesca, I don't know if you'd seen this story before. What what, what did you make of this? No, absolutely. I mean, that was one other big news this week. So, and by the way, I must disclose that I, um, so we were part of two two kind of programs with Tech Nations, both the FinTech program and the Upscale program. And I used to work at Barclay. So in a way, I feel like <laughs> well positioned here. So no, I, I, I completely agree. So I was very puzzled by this news and I don't even know what is confirmed. I hope not. I just think that simply uh, you need you know, a bank has a duty towards its shareholders and they need to do what's in the best interest of the bank, right? So assigning a program that by definition is supposed to be about disruption innovation and typically it's because banks cannot do it and B, that is supposed to be neutral. So not just, you know, needs to support equally all the, the full ecosystem of startups regardless of whether it's useful for a bank or not. I don't know, it seems to me... Um, something that is completely conflicting in the way it's been been done. So I don't I think it, it makes no sense because it's almost assigning a neutral program to somebody that would be partial or biased by design, not because, you know, or like willingness. So yeah, I don't think that's a natural home. And by the way, I do think that technicians done a fantastic job because they effectively have no agenda, no bias, only one mission. And having been part of that, I think they've fulfilled the mission you know, in the right way. So um, it'd be interesting to understand what has been driving this if it's confirmed. But I do think that probably it needs to be re- rethought if there is still a, you know, space to do that. What do you think, Ross? Are people getting worked up before the final decision has been made? Is this is this a storm in a teacup? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fair point, right? So I think we probably should stress that this hasn't yet been confirmed. By the government, I will also stress that this probably is another story that doesn't reflect particularly well on the government um, in this week's show. So it's an interesting one. I think Tech Nation, Francesca, as you've rightly said, has been enormously successful. It's given huge support to very successful fintechs over the years, Revolut, Monzo, I think Funding Circle and others. Um, it appears that this decision has been taken because of Tech Nation's failure, essentially, to become financially self-sufficient. So um, while they haven't, while it hasn't been confirmed by government, we do know that the contract was put out to tender earlier this year um, for this reason. So there is, you know, merit and there's rarely smoke without fire, I think, in this sense. I think the tricky thing is... Obviously, we, 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 we mentioned Monzo, we mentioned Revolut and, and, and some other huge fintechs is the argument that 
for every pound of government funding that Tech Nation has received, I think they've, you know, through those through those companies contributed a huge amount factors X's um, back into the UK economy as a result. Um, so I think it's it's a tricky one. They do have their own commercial revenues, um, things like sponsorships and the, their own sort of growth programs. But obviously now the pressure is going to be on to sort of maximize those revenues. I think their CEO has said that they will remain a going concern um, even if the contract is pulled. But just to bring it back to, I suppose, the, the headline, I mean, of course, it's going to raise eyebrows in a big way with a large global bank like Barclays, a FTSE 100 company, being given this government grant um, and being asked to administer it in this way. And I don't want to beat up Barclays too much. I mean, if you, know, if you had to award this to a bank in the UK, Barclays is not a bad choice. But I think the question is really, does it make any sense to have a bank running your, you know, running a, a startup program? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I feel like the, the, the paradigm has changed before. It's always, you know, maybe in the early 2010s, it was, you know, the fintechs raging against the, the big banks. And now we're actually in a period of partnerships actually leading the way. Um, but one thing that Technation I know has always been... Uh, Probably one of the, the, the reasons it was kind of it lost the contract was the fact that it was too focused on London, and I imagine that's why Barclays have had a, a look in. But it's funny that just this week, Tech Nation actually had their la- their widest um, kind of uh, talent coming in from various parts of the UK. I think it was uh, I have here, you know, various different places from uh, Manchester, um, Macclesfield, Northwest. Um, it's actually the widest amount of companies that have been based. Over 46% of late-stage companies this year have gone from Tech Nation outside of London. Because, I mean, that, you know, there's a political logic to that of saying, okay, actually, you know, that London, you know, like many capital cities, dominates its country and dominates the economy. And actually, part of the government's job is to spread that wealth, you know, and therefore support um, uh, startups and businesses throughout the regions. And so, you know, I think that's an interesting argument that that might be why the government is thinking to get someone someone else in. Yeah. Um, but I, and I want to come back to Francesca's point because I think, you know, that, that point you made, Francesca, about, you know, the, the sort of the, the power within large banks, that there are going to be, you know, groups within large banks, you know, profitable business units that look at some startup that's coming in using, you know, technology to completely undercut their business model and saying, we don't want that to succeed and finding ways to to sort of kill it. I mean, let's imagine Barclays does win this. How does Barclays, you know, stop its internal fiefdoms from just crushing certain types of innovation, right? Because we know that banks do that. Like, because why would you destroy your own business model? Why would you support a startup that... Yeah. It's potentially undermining you, right? Yeah, and I think maybe just if I may add to the I think that the problem, just to be clear, is not about Barclays here, is specifically, right? It is yeah. a very good bank and, and exactly. all that. And its problem is not about having people that might be biased. The problem is a structural issue, which is because I've been spending some time in banking before. And the problem, the reason why I, I still believe that one of the main reasons why innovation, real disrupting innovation, doesn't take off in big corporates or big banks is not only because of legacy infrastructure, because of incentives and mentality, right? So effective, you then rely on a big bank to exactly push the envelope and force innovation that can cannibalize the business, you're back to square one, which is why, you know, effectively you're limiting that innovation. So the real challenge would be how do you ensure almost a full Chinese walls? If that really happens, right? You need to ensure that whoever manages the program is completely ring-fenced, completely separated, almost different offices than the main bank. And then at that point, just wonder why why did it make sense, right? So, but that would be the challenge because if there are the same people, inevitably, you cannot change um, approach or mentality, right? So I think that would be the real question mark, I guess. Yeah, indeed. Well, politics is famous for, um, you know, leaks, and I wonder whether someone has leaked this precisely to give the fintech industry a chance to object to this decision. So, a good week to bury it. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, well, for more on the topic of tech accelerators, um, go and check out episode 663 of FinTech Insider Insights, where I was joined by some fascinating guests from Tech Nation, indeed, um, F45 and Oak North to discuss how tech accelerators have shaped FinTech and the very important role they have played. Okay, well, let's move on to our last story, um, our last big story, which is that Dutch payments giant Molly is expanding into lending with Molly Capital launch. And this was reported in Altfi. So businesses in the Netherlands and Belgium will soon be able to apply for a merchant cash advance of up to a quarter of a million euros via payments provider Molly. The launch is part of Molly's move to become a fully integrated business financing service, branching out from only offering payments. Because Molly already has sales data on its customers, it can easily assess affordability and small businesses can request funding in just a few clicks with cash arriving on the same day. Repayments are then automatically taken as a portion of daily sales, plus a one-time fixed fee is charged. To find out why Molly is making the move into lending, we reached out to Remco Janssen, founder of European technology news site Silicon Canals. So you need to know one thing about Molly. So they're typically seen as a payment service provider, right? So if, for instance, you want to pay at my company, you want to pay online, you do that through Molly. But Molly always set out to do one thing really good and is to service their customers as best as possible. They're religiously and maybe even holistically focused on getting the best product shipped out there. So I spoke to Shane Hapach, the CEO of Molly, at the next web conference a couple of years ago. And he basically told me, when I asked him, what is next in store for Molly? He told me, we're going to be more like a bank. We're basically becoming a bank. So what you will see in the coming next few years is Molly offering more services to customers that you know really make sense so to SME customers that really make sense you know typically things that banks used to do but are not doing well of course I mean well basically they're doing quite terrible and one of those things is providing SMEs with capital so if you ask me is this coming as a surprise to you I would say no this is a completely logical move that perfectly 100% fits into their strategy. And if you would ask me what will be next in store is, you know, other services from the financial and banking industries that are being provided by SMEs, but are not being provided well. Francesca, you, you know a fair amount about lending. Um, is embedded lending like this the future where, you know, Molly as a platform can see the sales data so they've got additional data about potential borrowers? Um, does that give them a significant advantage? Is this, is this kind of the future of lending, you know, particularly on the sort of business side of um, using more data about customers to maybe get smarter, maybe undercut existing lenders? Yeah, so I would say absolutely yes. I, I think this is a very natural move, um, especially for a player that is so obsessed uh, about, you know, on giving always the best product to customers, and it's very natural. So once you have a platform, you're already a customer base, you have transaction data. I mean, the natural next move is effectively to just find other ways to monetize all this data, all the behavioral data and this customer base. So I would not be surprised at all if this is the first step it's kind of what used to be called cross-selling or expanding share wallet, right? And and things like that. So um, I think it's very natural, but I think it's part of a macro trend, right? Uh, the macro trend that we need to keep in mind right now is that, I mean, it's not just about embedded finance. It's about what I, I would call almost unbundling of the banking or the financial services system. So if we think about how what the role of banks historically was to intermediate between people, right? They have money and people that need money and they could do that better than anybody else because they had inside knowledge, which was affecting knowledge about these customers or whether they could be good borrowers or not because they could see all the transactions on their current account. That was the secret source and why banks had a privileged seat, if you want, at the table. I think the world has changed dramatically now because effectively everybody, or Many other companies have access to the same data, so the same privilege to know whether somebody is a good borrower or a bad borrower. And this has happened through, you know, access to payment data. It's happened a lot through open banking, PSC2. So all of a sudden, I think that's why I really like to think that 
financial services are unbundling. You don't need a bank anymore to do all of these things. You have access to that behavioral data you can analyze probably better than a bank. And so why not giving a bespoke proposition in terms of lending that is probably probably more fit for purpose because you know probably your customer better rather than not. But I think it's, um, yeah, that's the interesting part for me to look at, when I look at all these things that are happening, the typical people calling better finance, they all point in one fact that there's a lot of disintermediation happening. And so the real mm. question is in the long term, right? What's the real role of a bank? Because, you know, I think my case, they will have probably money in a, in a current account, but we almost not know which is the bank that is offering the current account because what they will see, they will use apps and services that bring value add and and the current account will just be a piggy bank almost, right? So I think that's fascinating. I think that's very natural and very, to be expected even more. They'll be on the DoorDash bank app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think, Ross? <laughs> oh boy, how long have you got? Listen, as, as negative as negative as I was on the DoorDash story, I'm going to be positive on this one. Um, generally, look, I'm a big fan of the sort of expansion of services aimed at like better servicing the needs and kind of ultimately empowering small and, and medium businesses. Right, they've been forgotten for so long by more traditional players, and I think you've got. People coming into the market now, Molly, this is a great example, Stripe, PayPal, others. And I think they are applying new technologies, new sort of data techniques to addressing these needs. They're, they're sort of unlocking new use cases, new user segments. Um, I think what comes across really strongly about Molly as well is it feels like their success as a business is really aligned to their customers' success as a business, right? And I think they really care about actually helping them to be successful. And I think, you know, Molly being able to offer same day funds, you know, that's, that's in contrast to, to high street lenders when small and medium sized businesses make credit applications. It can take six months just to get a no, it can take up to nine months to get a yes. Right. And I mean, this is what I mean. This is the difference. It is empowering because that could be the difference ultimately between these businesses being successful and, and not being successful. And, you know, I saw another good example this week. Um, so Stripe has now enabled payouts for freelancers on its Connect platform in Circle's USDC coin, um, which is, you know, on the face of it, whatever you, you feel about um, crypto stable coins, etc. But actually what it's doing is it's opening up access for unbanked populations around the world to get paid for their work, right? So So Stripe is saying now that either through traditional currencies um, or USDC, they estimate now that 4.4 billion people around the world can get paid using its Connect platform. And I think the thing about that for me is you're bringing more businesses into formal financial services, right? And that's something that we all stand to benefit from because SMEs ultimately are the engine room, the backbone of, of, of most economies. Doug, I mean, payment companies sort of seem to be the sort of boring processes. And yet, actually, you know, we're seeing a lot of the payment companies starting to acquire other businesses yeah. and so on. Are, are they going to start taking some of the fintech crown and become the, you know, the consolidators? What, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's been the best. I mean, you, you always think of, of fintech and you think of the, the, the banking apps, but actually the, the real engine, the real kind of value add that they provided was being able to send money instantly to your friends and just suddenly being able to see see that in your account instantly. Um, it just showcases that maybe payments have always been the backbone of the fintech revolution. And when we talk, you know, Ross is bringing up liquidity, for instance, on the lending side of things, even if a company is complete, a, a small medium enterprise is fully liquid, but they're waiting on a payment. Happens that happens a lot. Exactly, and it should be in their account, but they can't see it. I mean, that suddenly... You can't relax at the end of the day. So now that we're starting to see instant payments, but also the, the transparency of where those payments are, um, especially if it's high value, which for a small medium enterprise is huge, um, that's going to be really, payment companies are going to be leading the way if they haven't been in the background already. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting watching Molly uh, with, this, mm. with this and see how successful they are. 
Well, that's all we've got time for on this story. But if you enjoyed Ross's passion on the topic um, and want to hear more about whether <laughs> SMEs are really being served by fintech, go and check out episode 659 of Fintech Insider Insights, where Ross was joined by guests from Alica Bank and Novo to talk all about SMEs. Right. Um, now for the section of the show that we're calling Big Click Energy, a quickfire roundup of some more clickworthy news this week. Ross, do you want to get us started? Yes, absolutely. So this uh, story comes from The Telegraph. Um, Nat West's male bankers to get a year off for fatherhood. So Nat West has told its male bankers that they can take a full year off when they become a father as it races to reinvent itself as more family friendly. The bank will next year introduce a policy that allows all new parents to take up to a year off regardless of their gender, of which half will be fully paid. Equal paid parental leave is increasingly common, but NatWest is unusual in offering fathers a full year off. It previously offered men two weeks of statutory paternity leave on full pay. Alison Rose, the first woman to lead one of the UK's big banks, added that the bank wants to do more to help families thrive. Um, Listen, I almost don't like the use of the term a year off. Uh, in this context, I think anyone that's had kids <laughs> will tell you that's probably not quite the case. But um, I do think this is a really um, positive step, I guess, in the right direction. Um, I think it allows fathers more time to to bond with, obviously, the baby and to be there to support um, the mother, the family, at really what is such an important time. So I think um, hats off to Alison and, and, and the team at NatWest Group. Um, really for recognising this and for taking such a positive step. Let's hope it becomes a little bit more commonplace. Yeah, great news. So from a happy story to a sad story, uh, Klarna is to make a second round of job cuts. This was reported in Sifted. Uh, Klarna is planning a second round of layoffs four months after it cut 10% of its global workforce. In a live video message sent to employees and reported by Swedish news site SVD, the company's chief operating officer, Camilla Giesecke, announced that the organisation needed to make further cuts to some of its departments. Klarna confirmed a new round of job cuts to Sifted and said fewer than 100 employees would be affected globally. It comes three weeks after CEO Sebastian Samarkowski told Bloomberg that all layoffs were done and that the company was moving on. Um, Really sad. Um, You know, Klarna has been, you know, one of the sort of poster children, if you like, of of fintech, although it's actually quite an old business. Um, It's been very successful. It's obviously miserable to see people losing their jobs. I think we're going to see this happening, you know, as interest rates go up, I think we're going to see some credit-driven businesses struggling. Um, So I wish the uh, best of luck to the people who are laid off um, from Klarna. Uh, Tough news. No, absolutely. Um, And then sort of all over the place here, but from, I suppose, a sad story back to a a happy story. Um, This one comes from Fintech Finance. So SME Fintech lender Alica has reached profitability in close to record time, according to CEO Richard Davies. He announced the bank has been profitable on a monthly basis for each of the last three months. The bank opened its door to lending in March 2020 and has already lent over £1 billion to mid-sized SMEs. It now has monthly loan originations reaching close to a billion pounds on an annualised basis. For more on this, we reached out to Richard Davies, CEO of Alica Bank. So we announced this week that Alica hit profitability over the last three months. And I guess the question here is, is the path to profitability a tough one? Now, I think the answer has to be yes. When you look at how many companies across all sectors that kind of start up and uh, take a long, long time to achieve profitability. I guess it has been a focus on growth over profits, kind of certainly during the, the pandemic times. That was particularly was valued by tech. I mean, I guess for us, we have the fortune of um, being particularly lending focused, which has positive unit economics, um, provided you can get the money back credit risk wise. And so that's something that certainly helped us to get along that path, but but definitely not an easy one. Um, and when I joined, we were losing about 25 million quid a year. So yeah, certainly a good step for us to hit break even and um, hopefully look forward to a lot more in the future. Um, I'm a big fan of Alica Bank. And so I'm Delighted, really, to see this announcement from them. I'm also um, not really surprised. I think these guys are really doing great things for businesses. And the fact, obviously, then, that they've reached profitability in record time, I think, just underscores um, 
the needs for these services, I guess, just to reiterate, I did chat with um, Kashfi from Alika Bank uh, in episode 659, which I know we've mentioned already, but I would encourage people to go um, and check it out. And we really should have got you, Douglas, to read out your own story there. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> All credit to FinTech Finance. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of the week. This week, we're diving into our FinTech Insider mailbag. We've been asking listeners to send in any quickfire questions for the panel to at FinTech Insiders. And we're answering a few of these in the final show of each month. So our first question is... What is a good example of a bank that is actually changing? And I'm going to fire that one at you, Ross. Ooh, uh, well, I suppose it depends on what we mean by uh, by change, right? I suppose it's quite a broad term. I mean, we talked about NatWest Group earlier, sort of taking what is a very progressive step on paternity leave, which is a positive change for male members of staff. I think I've seen lots of great examples recently of banks sort of embracing new technologies to great effect, like um, HSBC recently um, extended the use of its blockchain-based contour platform to enable sort of smoother trade finance processes and sort of almost open up sort of new international trade routes, which I think is really cool. Um, I would probably say that what we're still not seeing enough of, and we talk about this a lot at 11FS is traditional banks, I guess, shifting away from the focus on sort of analog financial products towards those more intelligent um, services and, and sort of insights. And I appreciate, obviously, it's really not easy. Uh, big banks aren't designed to uh, to sort of change quickly. But I think taking those intelligent services, embedding them at the point of need, like we've talked about on a couple of the stories as we've gone through the show today, really, I think that's where fintechs are changing the game. Um, and I, I, if that's what we mean by change in this context, I just don't really think that enough big banks are sort of doing it yet. Fantastic. Thank you, Ross. Okay, our second question comes from Lee Brooke Pierce, and it's quite a challenging question. So I'm going to send it to you, Francesca, because I reckon you might be the smartest one in the room. Um, what, <laughs> what, what operational challenges, apart from changing interest rates, have to be absorbed by banks and fintechs during this current period of monetary instability? So, you know, what I'm saying is this is a difficult one, considering how complex um, banks' operations are in the fact that monetary stability means a lot of things. Um, I would say, though, that few few things come to mind, but comes to mind, you know, apart from, you know, changing interest rates and all the impact we discussed before. Um, I think clearly one is, you know, customers' communication and, you know, ability to stay close to customers and maybe adapt processes and adapt communications in a way that is quick and easy and lean because typically for a bank so i would assume in the moment of monetary stability behavior of customers changes uh, probably needs of customers also changes probably many people will need more financial support as well um, and in this situation it's actually very helpful to be able to move quickly as a bank stay close to the customer adapt products change the processes and usually doing this operation is very difficult. Moving a bank typically is like moving oil tank and it cannot be done quickly. So I think being able to be agile and quick and adapt um, really in terms of procedures and processes would be um, very important. Um, I do think that on the financial side, or we should not forget that banks have a customer-facing side, but they have also treasury, they're big yeah. machines, right? They yeah. need to finance things. And I think that's where a lot of the complexity will be on the treasury functions of matching asset liabilities, swap rates, capital market volatility, taking the right decisions in terms of hedging and putting, you know, their portfolio, their books, their lenders and depositors in a safe position. So I think the treasury operations is probably another area where I'm sure a lot of people are doing a lot of thinking right now on how do they face this stability ahead and probably some of the strategic choices that different banks do in this moment will have a massive impact on their on the profitability and resilience of their respective institutions thank you so it's going to be an interesting period i guess 
It really is. Thank you. That was a very good answer to a, a, a tough question. Um, Douglas, you'll be pleased to know there's a much easier question for you. <laughs> this comes from uh, Luke Tiggy, who is marketing director at ePayments. And he says, how did you first get into the fintech industry? And I'm sure Francesca is sitting there thinking, why didn't you ask me that one? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Francesca would be able to provide a much better answer as well, a uh, much more interesting answer. But I mean, uh, yeah, I moved back from China having experienced uh, you know, 4G firsthand and a super app. And I, I saw an ad for someone that said, do you want to travel the world and uh, shoot bankers uh, on camera? And uh, <laughs> so, I, yeah, I jumped at it. And uh, yeah, um, you know, seven years later, here I am. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you all very much. Um, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much uh, to the three of you for joining me and being so entertaining. Where can people find out a bit more about you? Uh, firstly, Francesca. Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, or on molofinance.com. Douglas. Amazing. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Dougie Fintech. Um, also at ffnews.com. Uh, We've just had a giant rebrand, so come check out our new site. It looks uh, gorgeous. I'm going to do that right after this. And Ross. Uh, yep, I'm on Twitter at RossGallagher07. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn or at 11fs.com. Thank you so much to all of you for listening. Uh, please join the conversation on social media or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Send through your questions. Thank you very much and goodbye.